Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Timber in Construction, the Global Challenge. Hello everyone, welcome uh, to the Timber stage for our keynote presentation today on Timber in Construction, the Global Challenge. Uh, First of all, to kick things off, a big thank you to the sponsor of the stage, Timber Development UK. Uh, Timber Development UK are a membership organization for timber and construction for the whole supply chain. So regardless whether you're a designer, a consultant, or a manufacturer like ourselves at Storines, there's a place for you at TGUK. And we very much enjoy being a member uh, because of the fantastic resources they have um, about education, uh, technical details, etc. So very much encourage you after the talk, uh, go over to the stand, very friendly people, and get to know them better and how you can participate. also, a, a small note on housekeeping. We're going to have the, present, the keynote presentation very soon. Uh, but in the meantime, do, uh, you can ask questions via Slido while the presentation is ongoing. Um, so there's a QR code there right at the front of the stage that you can scan to ask questions. Please feel free to do that. Or you can also use the Footprint app. Uh, if you go to questions and then select the keynote at uh, this session, you'll be able to ask your questions that way. If all that fails, we've also got the roaming mic, so we can keep the discussion lively with in-person discussions as well. So all of that, uh, all of that aside, and welcome to the newcomers. So glad you could make it, you could make it in time for the talk. Um, I now have the pleasure as uh, Dr. Miller Chair with the Business Development Manager at Stora Enzo and also a young ambassador in next generation delivery at the Construction Leadership Council to introduce uh, to the stage Professor Michael Ramage. Uh, so Professor Ramage uh, leads the Center for Natural Material Innovation at the University of Cambridge. Uh, He's also a professor in architecture and engineering at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of the Sydney Sussex College. Uh, Balancing academia with practice, uh, Michael is also a chartered member of the Institution for Structural Engineers and the founding member uh, of our practice, which is all about designing light, uh, low-impact structures. Um, After an education at MIT, in architecture and a PhD at the University of Cambridge. Michael now helps to advance low-carbon, sustainable, natural building materials for all of the construction industry, uh, thanks to funding from prestigious sources such as the Leverhulme Trust, the British Academy, Built by Nature, and more. So really delighted to welcome Michael to the stage. Well... Thank you very much for that warm introduction and for the invitation to speak today. Um, It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk about timber and construction and what are some of the global challenges and what I think are also some of the global opportunities. Um, There are many, both challenges and opportunities. And uh, this morning I want to highlight a few of them I also want to highlight that I'm not going to talk about a few of them uh, because they're so well covered elsewhere uh, today and tomorrow at at Footprint Plus. So I'm not going to talk much about insurance and I'm not going to talk much about fire um, because there are some really excellent sessions devoted to those and I would encourage you to go to them. 
what I do want to talk about is how we move from a uh, heroic uh, but exploitative past of refining materials to a future where we grow and cultivate our materials in collaboration with nature. And as Mila said, I lead the Center for Natural Material Innovation at Cambridge, uh, where we work across the scale of materials uh, from the constituents of cells and what makes them up, all the way up to the scale of wooden skyscrapers. Um, and primarily what we're interested in is the embodied energy of buildings and how we can use natural materials as replacements for conventional materials. So typically timber and bamboo as replacements for steel and concrete, and hemp and flax as replacements for carbon fiber and glass fiber. And I'm going to talk mostly about, as you'll understand, timber today. And the goal is to replace buildings going up around the world like this in concrete with uh, their equivalents or improvements in timber. Um, and in the middle you see Mjostarnet in Norway, uh, which is a milestone building for a number of reasons. Um, it was the tallest timber building in the world for quite a while. But I think more important than that, it's the third tallest building in Norway built in any material. So we can see already that timber is competing directly with steel and concrete and appropriate for large-scale buildings. Um, Ascent uh, at the edge is now the tallest building in the world. It's about a meter taller than uh, Mjosternet and recently completed in Milwaukee in the United States. Um, and uh, so this is, this is 86 meters tall. Mjosternet's 85 meters tall. Um, but Mjosternet gets its extra height with that triangle at the top. Um, so Ascent really is uh, significantly taller. Um, and colleagues and I wrote the codes that define how tall a timber building is. Um, and that, that triangle slipped in. But um, I think we're going to see this trend increasingly. Um, but in addition to valuing buildings, large and small, out of timber, we also have to value the forests that they come from, uh, both for the value they give us ecologically and the value they have socially, environmentally, and materially. Um, and one way we can do this best is by valuing the logs that we cut as highly as possible and using them in the longest lasting engineered wood products rather than seeing them go to be burned or to low value products in pulp and cardboard. And so we work very much with how do you take these products and how do you use them most efficiently, most effectively in buildings. So many of you, maybe all of you, will know this building um, by Wa Thistleton. In London, this is the first tall timber residential building, and it initiated a, a, a series of buildings taller and larger in engineered wood products uh, for residential and now commercial buildings. 
And one of the things that I want all of us here to recognize and remember and hold on to as we move forward is that designing, engineering, and building large-scale buildings in timber is, has very much been led by the UK. And the design and engineering is still led by the UK. And it's one of the skills that we need to hold on to and can expand and should do more with. Now, this building and the tall timber buildings that I showed you are exactly the same scale as William LeBaron Jenny's home insurance building in Chicago from 1885, which was the first steel-framed skyscraper. And in less than 50 years, we went from this building to the 381 meters of the Empire State Building. And now, we have much better understanding of material science. We have much better tools for design, construction, engineering. And we can do something similar in timber. We can ask our questions whether we should, um, and we can come back to that in the discussion. But we absolutely can. And it makes for some really interesting projects and some really interesting research for us. Um, so this is River Beach Tower, which colleagues and I designed with Perkins and Will and Thornton Tomasetti in Chicago, a proposal for a 80-story skyscraper made with timber on the Chicago River, uh, just next to what was the Sears Tower and is now the Willis Tower. And this building proposal made use of all three major types of engineered uh, timber, CLT, glue lamb, and LVL, deployed where they're most used, and the structure is pushed to the outside to make the most use of uh, timber's material properties. But what was most interesting for this project uh, and I think for the future of engineered timber is how we might build it. Uh, because timber is so much lighter than its equivalent steel or concrete, we figured out a way to construct this using large-scale modules. And in fact, the entire project was based on the largest crane we could find in the United States and its lifting capacity. And that defined a two-story timber module that we could build off-site in a factory, and many of you will know that the Midwest of the United States is full of extremely large buildings that are now derelict factories, and could be repurposed for large-scale timber construction at ground level, 365 days a year, without regard for the rough and harsh winters. But then the construction in the summer can be with these large volumetric elements. And one of the things that we know from volumetric construction is that you're transporting a lot of air. And that's not necessarily economically viable when you're limited to the size of a lorry and the bridges that it has to travel through. But with this project, we're building on the Chicago River. We can bring the pieces there by barge, and we can lift them into place. And what turns out is that many of the urban areas we need to redevelop in our cities are also waterfront areas, because these are the old industrial areas. So there are numerous areas in the United States and around the world where we can transport timber by boat from sustainably managed forest 
two waterfront factories build at ground level around the world and then transport again the finished product to a waterfront construction site and assemble it very, very quickly. And one of the things that I see as a tremendous opportunity around the world, but particularly here in the UK, is to invest in the development of timber manufacturing. So not the raw materials of creating CLT or LVL or Blue Lamb, but the high value manufacturing uh, with CNC tools and so on. Here you see um, a factory in, a cross laminated timber factory in Austria. But if we do the manufacturing here in the UK, or if it's another country close to the construction site, we can do two things. One, that manufacturing adds 30 to 40% of the value to the timber itself. So we capture that value close to the construction site. Second, once we've put that value into the timber, it's, timber's not really fragile, but it has so much value, we have to handle it very, very carefully. So the handling becomes expensive and we move it on lorries, often wrapped to protect it from moisture. Prior to that, before we put the value of the manufacturing in, we can move these very large panels of CLT fairly roughly. We can transport them with cranes on trains to the UK with much lower carbon emissions for the transport. So one of the things that we think we need to look at for the future of timber construction, both in the UK and around the world, is investing in these relatively local regional factories for creating the high value capacity of manufacturing the buildings without regard for where the raw material comes from. The raw material can be supplied by any of the large or small manufacturers of CLT and other engineered wood products. It can be moved to these factories quickly and cheaply and economically, both cost and environment, and then we do the very specialist manufacturer and transport it very specialist a short distance. But if we're gonna do this, Anything in the built environment needs to be done with regard for the very large scale it might have if it takes off. And so we need very careful stewardship for people and the environment. And my daughters look at me and say, Dad, aren't you trying to cut down all the trees? And I kind of have to say, yes, I am. And so we have to ask ourselves, are there enough trees and how do we make sure that a building boom in timber doesn't, isn't followed by a collapse of our forests. So how much timber does it take? Well, a rough estimate is about 30 cubic meters for, to create, to build 100 square meters. That's a, that's a number from a few years ago. We can be more efficient now, and we are, but I'm an engineer. Often it's best to use conservative numbers so we don't oversell ourselves. That amount of material to build one apartment grows every seven seconds in the sustainable forests of Europe. Put another way, it grows in a plot 40 meters by 40 meters over 50 years. Canada's sustainable harvest, which is the amount of wood you can take out of the forests while maintaining the environmental and ecological value, 
is about 220 million cubic meters. They don't cut that much. Um, and there are absolutely things that we all can do to log forests better. But that number of 220 million cubic meters is about 15 billion cubic meters every 70 years. 70 years is roughly a human lifespan. It's roughly what we use to, um, for the lifetime of a building. And that amount of material, we can house a billion people in perpetuity. So I think there's enough wood. We have to balance that or understand that in the context that v most of this wood doesn't go to the highest value construction products. So that's one of the shifts that we need to make as an industry is put the wood into the longest lasting construction products. And we know uh, from our research and that of others that timber is as strong as steel when you take into account its density. So on the horizontal axis, there's strength normalized by its density. And on the vertical axis, it's stiffness normalized by density. And, and softwood and steel are roughly the same. So if you can build it in steel, you can also build it in wood. General rule. Doesn't apply to everything, but it applies to most things. And I suspect that something like 80% of the buildings under construction in the UK that are under 20 stories tall could be made in timber today. Um, so that's a challenge to those of you who are developers, architects, engineers out there. When you get a project, pick up your pencil and think, how can I do this in timber before you think about anything else? See what happens. You might be surprised. And increasingly, we need to care about embodied CO2. We spent decades thinking about operational CO2 and getting to lower and lower energy buildings. We now need to move to lower and lower embodied energy material. And this is a very specific problem. And so speaking specifically about the building in the background, which you can't see very well because it's grayed out, uh, it's a four-story timber student accommodation building in Cambridge, um, engineered by Smith & Wallwork engineers. In timber, the embodied energy is 126 tons of CO2 equivalent. Um, Alice Moncaster and colleagues of hers did a study to understand what the embodied energy of concrete and steel would be for the same building. Two and a half times as much embodied energy in concrete, almost four times as much embodied energy in steel for the equivalent structure. Now, this is before we take into account that every kilogram of timber stores 1.8 kilograms of carbon dioxide. And how does nature do this magic? Uh, it's because nature stores the carbon as the biomass of the cells, and it gives us back the oxygen to breathe. It is wildly more efficient than any technologically-based carbon capture storage device, and it always will be. So if we take the storage into account, this building is storing 540 tons of CO2 equivalent in its 300 cubic meters. And one of our challenges and opportunities is to be able to account for that going forward for a number of reasons. One, it has a financial value. And if we can account for it, it will have an increasing financial value. Two, it has an environmental value. We have to know where that wood is. And we have to keep that wood out of the atmosphere for as long as we can, 
And we know that's possible because we have buildings like this, one of the roofs of halls at Cambridge, which has been supporting uh, the slate above it for 475 years. And if we can track and understand where the timber is in buildings and when it goes from building A to building B to building C, and we have multiple lifespans of buildings, we can then see timber as a true global carbon sink and understand it in the context of how much more efficient it is than industrialized carbon capture and storage. And in the UK, and in fact England alone, we need something like 340,000 houses a year, which if built in timber could store up to 9 million tons of CO2 equivalent every year. And we can do this. It's not that hard. Uh, this is another housing project in Cambridge. This is designed by Field and Clegg Bradley architects, again engineered by Smith and Walwork. It doesn't look like it because of the planning regulations, but that's a timber building. Um, and it's a passive house timber building, so very low energy in operation, very low embodied energy, and clad in brick because of the neighborhood requirements. So looking forward, we want to be working with ways to build this, and we're looking at kits of parts. So how do you do something repeatedly um, and appropriately, but also adaptably, so that you can address many, if not most, situations. So we're working with Wall Thistleton on a new model building. You will hear from them about later. We're working in the same model on a new model school, which I'll get to in a moment. And we're working with PLP Architecture on flexible and adaptable housing. Uh, you see here a piece of an apartment built to the London plan, uh, installed currently at Somerset House in London as part of the London Design Biennale, showcasing ways to build in timber and ways to design flexibly so that a single building can have multiple uses and a single apartment can adapt over the course of time as you might go from being a single occupier to a couple, to a couple with children, or those children grow up and you don't need as much room anymore. How does that shift and change over time? And with Wah Thistleton, we're working on this new model school, um, and this is work uh, in collaboration with my colleague Dario, who's up front, and I know members of Wah Thistleton are here as well, looking at a very specific kit of parts that uh, has its glue lamb CLT based on screw piles so that the building is demountable and can be reused, reassembled, and then we've put it together in a very specific way for a small school extension in Cambridge uh, to show how you can use classrooms, uh, double height teaching spaces, and all the other spaces in a school that then you could replicate and get a very large school. So this is, this is work that we're doing that builds on the Department for Energy, Department for Education's Gen Zero series of schools, which are a secondary school. We've taken those principles and turned them into a primary school. So looking forward, 
we will see a few buildings like this that are very tall in timber and show the possibilities for large-scale and tall timber buildings. But in fact, most of the buildings that we need around the world are probably 15 stories and less. And that is exactly where engineered products and timber perform best uh, in comparison to steel and concrete equivalents. And as you've seen in the work that we're doing in housing and in schools, we think the way to unlock that potential is through institutional procurement of timber buildings. There are a huge number of remarkable timber buildings already in the world today, some of them hundreds of years old, some of them currently under construction, but we still see the need to eliminate barriers to making this a much more mainstream and the first material that people go to when they think of buildings. And we see one of the ways to do that is through institutional procurement, very large scale opportunities, so that the investment in material, manufacturing, technology, skills, has a very clear pathway and a very long pathway forward uh, for that investment. So, I'm really pleased to be here today talking to you, but I wouldn't be here without the help of many, many colleagues and collaborators in academia and industry. So thanks to them, and thanks to you all for listening, and thank you, Mila, thanks to TDUK for the invitation, and we have the opportunity for some questions and discussion. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much, Michael. What an inspiring and super informative talk. Uh, thank you tremendously. Um, so we do have some questions coming in, uh, which is great. You've got the IT working. However, they're not a lot considering we've got such a fantastic crowd. So I'm sure you've got something you're curious about, something you'd like to find out. Please do take this opportunity to ask Michael directly. Uh, we're going to have some time discussion now between myself and Michael, picking up on some of the key points there. In the meantime, um, anything you're curious about, please do send it across in the Slido, and we'll, uh, we'll get to it very soon. Um, so, Michael, you showed us kind of the size of the prize, what we can aspire to, and what technological solutions are there to reach that. Uh, but even some of the questions here have a lot to do with policy and regulations. Do you have any maybe more international rather than UK examples about policy that we could apply here in the UK as lessons learned? Yes, absolutely. So um, there are lots of policies around the world that um, advance the use of timber. And of course, there are some that retard the use of timber. Um, and uh, one of the one of the interesting things for me is that we see in places like British Columbia and other very heavy timber uh, economies, we see timber first policies. Um, but then we also see, uh, for example, in places like France, um, a timber first policy that is national, uh, where 50% of public buildings should be procured in timber. And it's, it's I think that very focused ecological approach 
uh, is more broadly applicable because the, the timber economies are very specific to the world. Um, but more broadly, I think we need timber buildings uh, yeah, throughout course. the world. No, yeah, of course, that's, that's some great points there. I'm just curious, what's your opinion? Um, because we've heard of these timber first policies and that's fantastic, but I'm wondering what are your thoughts between timber first policies or regulating and putting limits on embodied carbon? Do, could you explain, do you have any thoughts on those two approaches? Yes, um, I think both have their value. I think um, certainly very broadly, I'm more in favor of policies that regulate and limit embodied carbon. Um, because if we, can, if we can get to embodied carbon in very low embodied carbon in any material, that's a good thing. Um, at the moment, the lowest embodied carbon material for large-scale buildings is timber, and I, I think going forward it probably will always be. Um, but if we, we want to use timber appropriately and responsibly, and we want to use all materials that way, so I think there, isn't, there still isn't enough recognition of why we need to get to low embodied carbon and stay there and, and how we do it. And if it's material agnostic, but with a strict limit, then every material has to perform ag against the other materials. Um, whereas with timber first policies, they're, they're very understandable, um, particularly if you're pushing a particular economy, but there are times when that can feel like a material is being pushed at you harder than, it, than, than you want it to be pushed. Yeah, no, of course, and especially from the perspective of a, a mass timber manufacturer appreciates that, uh, that perspective. Um, and it's also quite interesting to hear your thoughts, especially in the context of uh, a lot of the excitement we've had recently about the Part Z, regulating whole life carbon in the UK, etc. Et um, I just want to pick up on a, a few more points. Uh, from your talk, um, you mentioned a lot of uh, design projects you've got and at the moment um, in the UK we're facing a skills shortage. Indeed, uh, I believe TGK have recently launched a timber in construction skills, uh, skills guide uh, about kind of the competencies we need to develop. But do you think, are we very good in the UK on any particular set of skills or do we need to develop them, uh, develop them further to build more with timber? Um, yes and yes. <laughs> so we have, we have some, as I highlighted, we have some very good skills in the UK in design, architectural design, engineering design, and consultants in the UK are, are often called upon to design projects around the world. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing that we should celebrate and expand on. Um, equally, we need to increase our skills in timber construction and we need to think of timber construction as a high value, highly skilled and high technology um, area of manufacturing. So these, these timber manufacturing off-site factories are they're, they're highly computer controlled. The skills to run them we probably need to build up and we need to think about them very much 
in the same way that we think of any other high value manufacturing. Well, yeah, of course, and that's fascinating that you, that you suggest that, um, because that would be those kind of uh, sub-assembly hubs after you get the material into the UK from somewhere, these kind of more local sub-assembly hubs can help to add a lot more value to the product. Um, and for example, with mass timbers in particular, uh, it's a very good product. Um, however, perhaps the level of prefabrication at the moment is relatively low compared to, let's say, modular or the, or the material. So uh, that way could also be a way to add further value to the product in the factory. Um, just an example of how that's happened. Um, um, in terms of innovation, let's say, um, uh, practically applied uh, in France. Uh, we at Storenzo invested in one of our kind of sub-assembly partners. So at the moment, that's something we're implementing in France, exactly the model you suggested. Um, so that just demonstrated that it can also work here in the UK and gets lots of high-tech people working some really exciting jobs on the CNC machines as well. That could be really great. Um, no, that's really good. I do see we've got lots of uh, lots of questions coming in here but I'm wondering so we've mentioned kind of designs and also manufacturing what about the whole supply chain what do you think who needs to who can participate in the timber supply chain and when should that when should that happen so the the whole supply chain um, is really valuable to look at together and I think you mentioned you mentioned whole life carbon and thinking about the entire carbon lifetime of a building um, and we need to think about what happens to the timber from the forest all the way to the second, third, fourth generation of, of what we do with that tree. Um, and one of the areas of value that I was highlighting is the, the storage potential of carbon dioxide in buildings and in cities. We, we know we can do it. We don't yet know how to account for it. Um, so we can track very well already from tree to sawmill. Um, as soon as the lumber leaves the sawmill, we start to lose the granularity of the data on what happens to the trees. And some of the projects that I showed you, we know where the wood came from. As soon as we cut it, we lose that data and we don't pass it on. So we are working on ways of embedding that in the material so that you can always know where your tree came from. Even 60 years from now, you could check um, and you would be able to say that this material is still storing CO2 that was captured in 1965 or 2000, depending on how old the tree is. Um, and that understanding of, of how the supply chain works now and how it will continue to work. And then when the we're going to get to a point where the supply chain is not just forests, but buildings that we take down in cities and then reuse. So how does that supply chain work? And that's part of what we and others are thinking about as a circular bioeconomy. Yeah, fa fascinating. Thank you. Um, and talking about forestry a lot, kind of about the origin of the resource and its true renewability. We've actually got quite a lot of questions from the audience on this, uh, so thank you very much everyone. Um, we'll maybe start off with this one. Um, industrial timber growth creates low biodiversity forests. Cutting down old growth forests reduces biodiversity. Is this being addressed or do you have 
a more general comment perhaps on the impact between using timber in construction and biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, where good management practices and high-value timber tend to go hand-in-hand, hand. we see examples around the world um, whereas the value of the timber goes up, the, the um, management of the forest goes up as well. Um, it's not always true because there is illegal logging as well as the value of a, any commodity goes up. You see nefarious forces going after that commodity. So the monitoring needs to be very, very good. Um, a lot of the timber that we use for buildings is from plantation forests, they're planted as crops, like wheat. Um, we just cut them down on a very different cycle. Uh, so we don't think of them as a yearly crop that we cut down. They're a two or three decade crop that gets cut down. And of course, while they're growing, they provide important habitat and important ecosystem services to entire areas. Um, and so then when we do cut them down, we have to recognize that we've done something valuable for 30 years, we can't just negate it with one just slice of a thousand saws. So how do we do that well? Um, increasingly, um, we see targeted felling. Um, we want to see better use of um, trees that die naturally. We're going to see increasing tree death, unfortunately, due to climate change. Um, but we also know um, that good forest management, as in cutting down trees well, can often save forests as well, um, because they, the forest fires are less intense, and the trees will survive forest fires if we manage them well. Um, so there's, there's a trade-off, and I, I don't have all the answers, but I do say that we, need, we can do it, but we need to do it carefully, and we need to have um, the FSC isn't perfect, Forest Stewardship Council Management, PEFC, but they're absolutely better than nothing. Um, and we also have to recognize that there are multiple sources of deforestation, and the deforestation for agriculture is usually completely independent of cutting trees down for construction. Um, and those are, you know, we saw recently that 800 million trees have been cut down in, in the Amazon to grow beef. Imagine what that could have built in the world. I'm not advocating we cut down 800 million trees, but uh, most of those trees get burned um, just to make way for beef. And that's, that's independent and bad, so we need to stop it, but it's different from growing trees uh, for building materials. And ensuring their renewability, for example, with their certification methods you, you, you mentioned, uh, which I get asked for about a lot. Um, it's kind of a very common question when people are using uh, 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 materials and where to supply it from. Um, following on from that, we'll do questions on one the same theme uh, and then move on to another theme. Uh, but there's another related one here. Um, so if we use all that timber, let's assume it's well managed, as you explained, for biodiversity. We're assuming that. Uh, but so if we use all that timber for construction, how do we then prevent a plastics boom to make up, let's say, if there isn't enough timber to, let, to then make cardboard or other biodegradable packaging? 
in kind of the wider everyday life? Um, so it's a really good question. Um, and one of, the, one of the wonderful things about trees and wood products is also our greatest challenge, which is that they're useful for so many things. Concrete is useful for about one thing, maybe two. But you don't get concrete paper, you don't get concrete um, furniture, rarely. There's, but wood is, wood is almost universally valuable and usable, um, which is why I'm always advocating that if we cut, when we cut a tree down, we put it into the highest value, longest lasting product, which is usually a building. Um, and that subsequent uses of either the, the branches and so on uh, from that tree or the stumps from the forest or the material that we currently often throw away, but the offcuts, we find ways to turn those into a supply chain for cardboard, paper pulp, and there are, of course, I'm using trees fairly generically, where there are you know, so many species. There are some species of trees that are grown exclusively for pulp and are not very useful for, for construction. Um, so there is, that, there is that balance as well. Yeah, of course, because you get quite different quality of timber from different types of trees, depending on where, how and where they're grown. Um, so just to build upon your comment, I'll give uh, a very specific example from, from us at Storenzo. So we are one of the world's largest private forest owners. We also, uh, we're also Europe's largest timber supplier and we're a CO2 manufacturer. So all that means is that we are aware uh, of the supply chain from seedling all the way to building. So as the tree passes from growth uh, to harvesting, then sawmill processing and then finally becomes a CO2 panel. Um, and interestingly, we do use 99% of each tree and 99% of the residues as well. That's really important. But one of the ways to optimize that balance between construction and uh, packaging, we find, is to use the highest quality timber for construction. So about 33 to 40% of each tree goes to construction, uh, to making COT. That's the highest quality material. And then the rest, which is perhaps less optimal, can then go to paper and cardboard. Uh, it's a very practical way to achieve, uh, to achieve that balance, and it already exists. Um, so now moving on to uh, another question, which was very highly rated. Um, fire regulations have put the brakes on residential and tall timber buildings in the UK. Um, but how can we navigate this to convince clients and ensure the timber is okay? So not changing the regulations, but communicating better with clients and insurers. How can we approach that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a crucial question for unlocking the future of timber, particularly in the UK. Um, and it is, it, is, it is both a perception problem and a real problem. Um, but designing, we have building codes for a reason. Um, but designing safe timber buildings is very similar process to designing safe steel buildings or safe concrete buildings. It's good design in accordance with the regulations will result in, in safe buildings um, if you know what you're doing and if the regulations are appropriate. 
Um, so there is ongoing research, uh, because as we build taller and taller in any material, we understand it better. And a lot of the fire regulations in particular are based on historic approaches to fire, which may not be appropriate anymore. Um, but we, we generally see around the world, except in the UK, regulations allowing taller and taller buildings for, for years. And when I say years, I mean decades. Timber was limited in the US and Canada to the height that fire engines could get to for no particular reason except that that's what was thought was appropriate, whether it was appropriate or not. But you can, I mean, you can understand where it came from, whether or not it is the appropriate approach. And in the UK, the regulations were much more performance-based. So if you could demonstrate the buildings uh, were safe, whatever material they were in, you could do things uh, appropriately. Um, <clears throat> so it's the quality of design much more than, and the quality of the regulation, much more than the underlying material um, that I think we should focus on. We also, fire is a very emotive subject, and we are in, uh, you know, after the Grenfell tragedy, of course, fire is very much in our minds, but I think most insurers will tell you that fire isn't the problem they face, it's water. Um, and again, water damage in timber is a design problem. It's same thing happens in steel and concrete. They will rust uh, and fall apart if you don't design them well. So it's, it's designing for timber. And we talked earlier about skills. We don't have skills in the UK generally to do that or around the world. We have the very specific skills and we lead those skills. But that's in our consultancies, engineering and architectural design consultants. We don't teach timber design broadly at any level, in, in regional colleges, in higher education, in further education. People who are good at it, and as I say, there are lots of people in the UK who are good at it, have often become good at it because they have, their, they, they have an, an interest in it themselves. They've taught themselves, and then they've taught the rest of the world. Uh, but we need to expand that. Yeah, and of course, and that's a really great way to finish our talk. So, big call to action from Michael for all the designers, developers uh, in the room to design to design more timber structures and develop your skill sets. So, can we please take some time to thank Michael for the fantastic talk? And thank you, Mila, for you. moderating and hosting. Thank you so much. And I do encourage you to visit the next sessions and come to talk to us. You'll find us in the crowd. Enjoy your day, everyone.